0: Last time we spoke about the beginnings of Operation Watchtower, the invasion of Tulagi, Gavatu, Tanambogo, and Guadalcanal. Major General Vandegrift sent Brigadier General Rupertus with the first raiders to smash Tulagi, Gavatu, and Tanambogo, as he himself led the men of the first marines to take Lunga Point's airfield on Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal would prove to be less eventful in the beginning compared to that of Tulagi, Gavatu, and Tanambogo. The men under Rupertus would fight bitterly to seize the three islands and paid dearly in casualties. It was all to just be an appetizer for what would become the norm of island hopping warfare for the rest of the war. Now, While the Americans took the Japanese by complete surprise with the commencement of Operation Watchtower, the IGN would quickly make plans for a grand retaliation to knock the Americans out of the Solomons. Midway may have hurt them, but the IGN were still ready for a good fight. This episode is the Battle of Savo Island. Welcome back to the Pacific War podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com and Generals. And hey, if you're still hungry for some more content, why don't you check out our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, where you can listen to The Fall and Rise of China, narrated by me. Also, you can check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I've got episodes going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Today, the Battle of Midway is remembered typically as a turning point of the Pacific War, leaving the IGN significantly hurt. It is considered a turning point of the Pacific War as it was the Allies' first major naval victory against the IGN. However, the Japanese would continue to try and secure more territory and the United States would not move from a state of naval parity to one of supremacy. The IGN still was top dog in the Pacific. What really was a turning point was the Allied switch to the strategic initiative, as we see with the commencement of Operation Watchtower. Now the Allies were taking on large offensives, but honestly, if you hear someone say the Battle of Midway was THE turning point of the Pacific War, myself and quite a lot of historians would argue this is not the case. There are other turning points that would tip the scales, so to say, later on, such as the naval battle of Guadalcanal, or Leady Gulf. So, stating all of that, we go back in time, just a bit, to the fateful day the Americans surprised the hell out of the Japanese by commencing Operation Watchtower. Even before, the panicked radio yelps from Tulagi went out to the IGN, Admiral Mikawa had decided audaciously to counterattack with his surface fleet units despite the presence of American carriers. At 8.30am he signaled orders to assemble his flagship, Chokai, with four other heavy cruisers to prepare for a night attack upon the enemy ships at Guadalcanal. American radio intelligence intercepted this message, but did not decode it properly until August the 23rd, long after it would be of any use. Initially, Mikawa was not going to use light cruisers in his order of battle, seeing them as more of a liability than an asset because of their age and state of training. These were the older Tenru and Yubari. But the senior staff officer, Commander Tamio Shinohara, insisted on their participation, forcing Mikawa's agreement. While Mikawa waited for his forces to gather, he sent four submarines with haste to hit the Allied shipping at Guadalcanal, alongside reinforcements for Tulagi and Guadalcanal. The 17th Army offered its confidence that they could easily expel Americans from the Lower Solomons. Mikawa gathered a unit of 519 sailors with rifles and machine guns aboard the Mea Maru and Soya and sent them along their way. However, he would be forced to recall them on August 8th when he learned of the strength of the American landings. Unfortunately for the Mea Maru, as she turned away around 14 miles west of Cape St. George, The USS S-38 submarine captained by Lieutenant Commander Henry Munson saw her and managed to hit her with a torpedo, killing 373 men. During the morning of August the 7th, Mikawa and his fellow staff contemplated the dangers and merits of hitting the Americans. The presence of American carriers and the absence of reliable naval charts proved quite dangerous. They hoped the 25th Air Flotilla would be capable of dealing with the carriers. They also had concerns about their potential striking force. Four ships out of the cruiser Division 6 constituted an experienced team, but none of the other ships had worked together before. Many of the staff felt they lacked enough destroyers, but none of these factors deterred Mikawa from grabbing command of the venture at the offset. Mikawa departed Rabaul around 7.40pm on August the 7th, taking direct command of the striking force that comprised of five heavy cruisers, the Chokai, and Admiral Goto's four cruisers of the 6th Cruiser Division, the Oiba, Furitaka, Keiko, and Kunigaza, two light cruisers, the Tenru and Yubai, and the single destroyer, the Yunagi. During his advance towards Guadalcanal, Mikawa would launch a search with his cruiser floatplanes, gathering a competent amount of information that would further be aided by reconnaissance from land-based planes and the work of Japanese observers around Tasafaronga, Mikawa's reconnaissance aircraft flew missions from the 7th to the 8th searching vainly for the American carriers. However, they were hiding unexpectedly under clouds southwest of Guadalcanal. The reconnaissance found 27 transports, several destroyers off Guadalcanal, as well as three heavy cruisers, 13 transports, and several destroyers just off Talagi. It was an excellent sign that the enemy had separated into two groups and it made them much more vulnerable. But still, not knowing where the American carriers loomed was a major issue. Mikawa would break radio silence to ask the 25th Air Flotilla if they had spotted the carriers, but he received no reply. This led Mikawa and his staff to estimate the enemy carriers must be within 100 miles of Guadalcanal. And that they posed no danger unless their striking force made its approach too early. At 4pm, his striking force was heading south, just left for the Bougainville Strait, entering New Georgia Sound. Unbeknownst to the striking force, they were within range of three American carriers. At 4.42pm, Mikawa signaled his battle plan, The striking force would penetrate the passage just south of Savo and proceed to torpedo the enemy forces off Guadalcanal, then swoop over towards Tulagi to attack them with torpedoes and shelling before withdrawing north of Savo. The attack would begin at 1.30 am, so the striking force would be beyond a 120 mile radius from Savo, thus well away from retaliation by carrier planes before sunrise. In light of the confined waters and inexperience of some of his ships, Mikawa selected an elementary line astern formation, with 1,300 yards between the vessels so each ship could properly fire torpedoes and guns. It was a calm voyage down the New Georgia, and Mikawa's radio men were eavesdropping on a lot of American carrier plane traffic. But as the night grew darker, the chatter petered out, indicating that the aircraft were on board their carriers. Sunset came at 6.15pm, and by 6.30, Mikawa sent a Nelsonian signal to his ships. In the finest tradition of the Imperial Navy, we shall engage the enemy in night battle. Every man is expected to do his utmost. Now over on the American side, the Admirals devised a multi layered defense for their landing units. They had expected early detection and were relying on the carrier planes to patrol the area and be a threat to any IGN ships venturing towards Guadalcanal. Picket destroyers equipped with radar would guarantee no hostile force could near Savo Island at night without alarms being sounded and close screens of cruisers and destroyers would provide the last line of defense. Then, within a 48-hour window, Mikawa turned all of these plans to ashes. The Allied air search was divided into a west group under MacArthur and an east group under Gormley. The RAF Hudsons were flying out of Milna Bay on New Guinea southeast as the Navy sent PBYs north and northwest. Despite all the Allied efforts, Mikawa's striking force evaded them for the most part. But on the 7th, some B-17s raiding Rabaul caught sight of them just 25 miles north of Rabaul on a westerly course. Another B-17 would see them later on in the St. George's Channel on a southeastern course. Later that day, the S-38 reported some ships passing over her. All of these reports did not reach Rear Admiral Richmond Turner until 7 a.m. on August the 8th. Thus kawa's force wiggled right through the holes in the Allied defense. Now remember, the carriers were going to leave after three days of landing operations. When the Japanese sent airstrikes against the landing operations, it made Admiral Fletcher even more jittery than usual. And he was quite jittery. Upon seeing the Japanese aircraft were using torpedoes, Admiral Fletcher proposed taking the carriers out on August the 8th. At 6.07 p.m., he sent word to Admiral Gormley and Turner stating this. Fighter plane strength reduced from 99 to 78. In view of a large number of enemy torpedo planes and bombers in this area, I recommend the immediate withdrawal of my carriers. Request tankers be sent forward immediately as fuel running low. 30 minutes later, Fletcher took his Task Force 61 out of harm's way, just due southeast. Ever since this decision, Fletcher has met a ton of scorn for leaving earlier than planned. Unfortunately, as far as Gormley was concerned, the retirement of the carriers was due to fuel shortage, as the message gave an impression of. It would prove to be absolute bullshit later, Fletcher's carriers had enough fuel to operate for several more days. He was just trying to make an excuse. As darkness fell on August the 8th, Admiral Turner faced some rather tough decisions. After two days of bitter air attacks that took a transport and damaged some of his destroyers, he could only expect more on August the 9th. But now, he had lost his protective air cover. He was also receiving reports from Admiral Nimitz, that Japanese submarines were trying to attack shipping off Tulagi, though these would prove to be false alarms. Turner, that night, was relying on some contact reports that told him there was the presence of two seaplane tenders in a Japanese task force approaching. This, as we all know, was wrong, and unfortunately, Turner believed them. Seaplane tenders were quite slow, so Turner gauged they would not reach Guadalcanal that night. Turner also concluded the Japanese were planning to set up a seaplane base at Rikasta Bay on Santa Isabel Island to launch a torpedo attack against them. So he requested Admiral McCain to attack Rikasta Bay at dawn. Turner called for a meeting aboard his flagship, including Vandegrift and the British Rear Admiral Victor Crutchley, who commanded a screening force of 8 cruisers, 15 destroyers, and 5 minesweepers. Now the British Admiral had divided his forces into three groups. Rear Admiral Norman Scott was leading the eastern force of light cruisers San Juan, Australian light cruiser Hobart, and the destroyers Buchanan and Monsin, sealing the eastern approaches between Florida and Glottal Canal. Captain Frederick Rykhoff's northern group of heavy cruisers Vincennes, Quincy and Astoria, and destroyers Helm and Wilson were guarding the northwestern entrance. Lastly, Admiral Crutchley himself had the southern group of Australian heavy cruisers Australia and Canberra, heavy cruisers Chicago, and the destroyers Bagley and Patterson guarding the southwestern approaches. In addition, Crutchley had positioned two destroyers, Blue and Ralph Talbot, to patrol the area west of the southern and northern groups. These two destroyers had SC radar mounts and like all early radars, The equipment required a great deal of experience from their operators to achieve maximum performance. The SC radar was capable of ranges between 4 to 10 miles, but few officers could use it that well. Crutchley's deployment of the picket lines undermined their scope completely. When Turner heard of all of Crutchley's formation plans, well, he approved of it, because he himself was not very familiar with how radar technology worked. It would turn out, in the future, setting four ships instead of two destroyers for the radar picket line patrol would have been a much better choice. In the end, two transport groups and their respective screens were separated by about 15 to 20 miles. Turner split his flag officers amongst the two groups. He would remain with the Guadalcanal Group and Admiral Scott with the Tulagi Group. This left Crutchley with the screen. Mikawa's strike force off Savo enjoyed a moonless night with an overcast, perfect for sneaking. He was further bolstered by reports from the 25th Air Flotilla that they had sunk three cruisers, two destroyers, and nine transports that day. Pure bullshit. But it boosted Mikawa's confidence and convinced him he possessed the upper hand. At 11.15pm, his ships catapulted four floatplanes to scout ahead and they used flare illumination, spotting three allied cruisers just south of Savo. Thus, at midnight, the Japanese took to their battle stations and increased speed to 26 knots. At 12.50, Chokai's lookouts spotted Blue, slowly moving five miles away. Blue was oblivious to the many guns directed at her. Then Chokai's lookouts spotted the Ralph Talbot. It was the first time, but would not be the last, that Japanese lookouts spotted Allied ships before their radar spotted them. As I've already mentioned once in this podcast, the Japanese put major efforts into night vision, not actual night vision, but rather a specialized large binocular that gave the Japanese an advantage over the Allies for the first half of World War II. Basically, they had trained men who had the best eyesight at night to use extremely large binoculars that allowed them to see at night better than their counterparts. And until the Allies really got a good firm hold of how to use radar, the Japanese would have the upper hand. These huge brass and steel binoculars on many of their warships were often large enough to fit a human head inside, with lenses that absorbed 980 times more light than the human eye, offering a view of objects up to 20 miles away. Very impressive. Many of these were built by Nippon Gogaku, a supplier that would later become Nikon, the camera company we know today. On top of the excellent binoculars, the IGN trained specifically for night combat, both for tactics and with their equipment. Spotters were carefully selected for those who had the best night vision. Crews were drilled to use searchlights or flares dropped from spotter planes to illuminate targets, and then gun crews would time their salvos to mark the splashes and zero in on those targets. Destroyer and cruiser crews also trained in nighttime torpedo tactics, as we've already seen quite a few times. The Type 93 Long Lance torpedo proved to be one of the IGN's most deadly night weapons. Before the widespread introduction of US fire control radar, and the tactics and doctrine to exploit it, this night fighting training was a crushing tactical advantage for the Japanese. During the 1930s and the 1940s, while the US and Britain focused on developing radar, the Japanese largely ignored the new technology, believing in their superiority in the optics of binoculars, which led them to think they didn't really need radar. Until the middle of 1943, The trained Japanese lookouts on just a decent starry night could spot an American ship equipped with radar before a blip appeared on the radar screen. But eventually, as American search radars would get better, they would begin to outsee the Japanese night binoculars, and thus radar proved to be the real cutting-edge technology of naval warfare during the Pacific War. Back to the battle. Mikawa shaped a series of courses to hide his movements. Then at 1.30 am, he ordered all ships to attack and increased the striking force speed to 30 knots. Right around this time, Yunagi became detached from the formation and lost sight of her sister's ships ahead of her. Yunagi hauled west to probably avoid running right into the enemy. A minute after the call to attack, Chokai saw a cruiser to port. This was the Jarvis, which had been crippled by a Betty early that day and was limping out of the area. Pressing his luck, Mikawa held fire, despite being very close in range, as the Furutake seized the opportunity to fire torpedoes at Jarvis unsuccessfully. Two minutes later, Chokai saw three cruisers 12,500 yards off her starboard bow, forcing Mikawa to order independent firing. Chokai's commander, Captain Hayakawa, cried out to fire torpedoes to starboard. Four long lance fish fired out as Chokai's lookouts reported seeing the flagship, Vincent's, to the northeast. Chokai then broke the silence by firing a salvo at Canberra, and soon after, flares blossomed over the transports off Guadalcanal, illuminating the southern group. Aboard the Allied screening ships were some very exhausted sailors. Ralph Talbot was the first to see a float plane low over Savo, heading east towards Talagi, as she broadcasted, Warning! Warning! Plane over Savo, heading east! That message never reached the southern group because they lacked TBS radios. At 1.43am, a lookout in Canberra's crow nest faintly made out a ship just 4,500 yards away. It was most likely the Chokai. Then, 30 seconds later, the lookout spotted torpedo tracks as two ships suddenly materialized on her port bow, just a few thousand yards away. Flares illuminated Canberra as Chokai began shelling her, and the furatake quickly followed suit with guns and torpedoes. A minute after, Oba added her guns and fired three torpedoes at Canberra, then Kaiko joined in firing on Canberra and the Chicago. Within 4 minutes, Canberra sustained 24 hits from 5 enemy ships. Her boiler rooms were knocked out, killing all of her power for armaments, pumps, and firefighting equipment. Shells smashed her 4-inch gun deck and sliced open her deck crews before they had a chance to fire back. Her torpedo crews fared a little better as Shells hit her hull, quickly listing her to 30 degrees. By 1.50 am, Canberra was coasting to a halt with a bonfire atop of her. The Chicago watched in horror as Canberra was battered and torpedoes were chasing Jarvis. Chicago turned hard to starboard, seeing torpedoes coming her way, but at 1.47 a.m. a torpedo from Keiko smashed right into Chicago's starboard bow. Then a second thudded against her, but failed to explode. Yes, that sometimes happened to the Japanese as well. Even the long lance torpedo could have duds. Despite the numerous flashes of enemy guns, the Chicago crews could not fix their sights on any particular target. A pair of star shells remedied this problem just before a shell pierced her main mast and exploded her forward funnel, wounding 13 men and killing two. By one forty-nine am Chicago observed Patterson locked in action with enemy ships and joined her with her 5-inch guns, landing a hit on the Tenru, killing 23 and wounding 21. Chicago then swept her two searchlights, revealing only empty sea. Captain Bode kept Chicago standing to the west as the battle edged south of Savo. To make matters worse, he did not even report his encounter. At 149, Destroyer Bagley saw the enemy and fired four torpedoes, missing with all of them. Meanwhile, Patterson of the Southern Group sighted an enemy ship at 146, most likely the Furataka, and sounded General Quarters, she also tried to signal Canberra and Chicago by blinker light, stating, Warning! Warning! Strange ships entering harbor! As Commander Walker was about to yell and order the crew of Patterson to fire torpedoes, his voice was washed over by Patterson's guns going off. Patterson had begun a duel with the Tenru and Yubari, using her searchlight to illuminate her enemy and zigzagging to avoid the enemy salvos. At 1.48 a.m., an enemy shell knocked out two of her 5-inch guns, starting a fire and killing 10 men. The Japanese thought she was sunk, but Walker's crews managed to put out the blaze and a minute later was hurling 5-inch defiance at the two enemy ships. While the duel went on, Patterson's gun crews noticed enemy cruisers heading east, and they took a shot at one of them, the Kinugaza, at 156. Mikawa had demolished the southern group in roughly seven minutes and saw the northern group when his formation unintentionally split in two. Following Chokai was Oba, Keiko, and the Kinugaza, heading east. Chokai fired four torpedoes towards Vinson's at just 12,000 yards away before turning to engage the northern group. Meanwhile, Canberra lurched across the original Japanese path, forcing the Furutaka to swerve hard to port. Most likely because of this, the other three Japanese ships followed Murataka, forming a western group. At 1.55am, they got into formation to fire torpedoes, and Furataka took the lead by illuminating Quincy with her searchlights and began to open up fire. Three minutes before the chaos had begun, the northern group led by Vincennes had been performing a box patrol. The three cruisers' captains had been fast asleep when at 1.44 a.m. the crews began to literally feel underwater explosions. It was the Japanese torpedoes going off, but the crews shrugged it off as anti-submarine actions by the southern group. A minute later, they saw flares and heard gunfire to the south. Slowly they began to stir the crews, Captain Rykoff of Vinson's got to the bridge, From the bridge, no one could see the Canberra or Chicago being battered, but they could see the gun flashes. Rykov rightly guessed the enemy to be a smaller force of ships using 5.5-inch guns. He was receiving no contact reports from the Southern Group, so he appraised the situation as a Japanese light unit in battle with the Southern Group. He also reasoned this might be a decoy to lure him away from the northern passage, so Rykov decided to increase speed to 15 knots, but to allow the situation to develop further. It was around 1.50 a.m. when suddenly searchlights from the southeast illuminated his three cruisers of Astoria, Quincy, and Vinson's. He assumed it was the southern group, and he began to send radio signals asking them to stop illuminating him. Then, shells began to fall all around his ships. Chokai's lights were latched onto Astoria and Admiral Mikawa noted with pleasure that her guns were well trained upon her as he ordered, commence firing. Just before 1.51am, the Japanese flagship tossed her first salvo at Astoria, while Keiko rapidly fired upon Vincent's. Aoba was the third to open fire and managed to hit Quincy with her first three rounds. Keiko gunner crews could see fires gnawing aboard the Vincent's. But after 1.55 am, Makawa's once neat formation began to disintegrate. Chokai went 28 degrees, and Admiral Goto aboard Oyoba ignored the course change by the flagship, keeping himself on a northerly course. Chokai thus began to fall off to her starboard hand and steamed into some trouble. In the rear of the American formation, the Astoria had first assumed the enemy were friendly ships, accidentally firing upon them and for four, precious minutes withheld her own salvos. Then the crew realized the enemy, friend or not, was not going to stop firing upon them, so she began to unleash her salvos. This squandering earned Astoria a shell from Chokai, that began a fire in her hangar and her boat deck, making her even more illuminated. Chokai began scoring multiple hits, then at 2 a.m. Astoria began to take concentrated fire from all the Japanese ships. A cascade of hits severed her communications, fire room, disabled her guns, and ignited large parts of her midsection. By 2 Astoria's course bent 185 degrees, and four minutes later, her power flickered out and her bridge lost steering control. Astoria fired a salvo aiming for the Kinugaza but the salvo went right over her and smashed into Chokai's 4 four-mast main battery turret, killing up to 15 men. Astoria then glided half ablaze. Of all the northern group ships, it was the Quincy who impressed the Japanese the most, but would also pay the most for it. When the Japanese searchlights had illuminated the Americans, Captain Moore of Quincy increased speed to 15 knots and began firing upon the searchlights immediately. Quincy was hit by many salvos on her fantail before 1.53 and shortly after on her bridge. One salvo had hit her 5-inch cartridge cases on gun number 4, killing many men. Then at 1.55 a.m., a shell smashed a floatplane in the well deck spraying gasoline everywhere and soon the boat deck was ablaze. Furutaka and the Tenru began to crossfire Quincy at 2 a.m., Captain Moore realized he was being overtaken on both sides by columns of Japanese ships, and in order to avoid a collision with the Vincennes, he gallantly took Quincy out of the American column, heading straight into the Eastern Group. He shouted to his crew, We are going down between them! Give them hell! To the Japanese, Quincy was ablaze, lurching out of formation as if to ram one of them and firing her forward guns. The Japanese admired her spirit, as they concentrated fire upon her. At 2.04am, two torpedoes slammed into Quincy from the Tenru. It slashed open her port side. Quincy staggered forward, firing a salvo at Keiko, but overshot it, and that salvo smashed into Chokai, killing and wounding 36 men, and turning the flagship's chart room to embers. Quincy took another hit to her bridge at 2.10am mortally wounding Captain Moore and killing most of his staff. One by one the guns began to silence on Quincy, and by 2.16am she was hit by a torpedo from the Aoba, striking her starboard side. The eastern group ceased firing upon her as she was obviously sinking. Aboard Quincy, Lieutenant Commander John D. Andrew went down to the bridge to assess the situation. And this is what he reported. When I reached the bridge level, I found it in shambles of dead bodies with only three or four people still standing. In the pilot house itself, the only person standing was the signalman, at the wheel who was vainly endeavoring to check the ship's swing to starboard to bring her to port. On questioning him, I found out that the captain, at the time was laying near the wheel had instructed him to beach the ship and he was trying to head for Savo Island, distant some four miles on the port quarter. I stepped to the port side of the pilot house and I looked out to find the island and noted that the ship was heeling rapidly to port, sinking by the bow. At that instant, the captain straightened up and fell back, apparently dead without having uttered a sound other than a moan. The survivors of the Quincy began to run for the lifeboats, and by 2.38 am, Quincy began to sink into the waters, giving them a new name. Iron Bottom Sound. Vincent suffered many hits at the offset of the battle, and saw the Japanese Eastern group trying to cross their T, so Rykoff ordered and increased his speed to 20 knots. Vincent's gunners made a hit on Kinugawa's steering gear, with their second salvo, causing the cruiser to begin wobbling. As Rykov was about to order the ship to make for 25 knots at 1.55am, Chokai landed a torpedo hit on her port side. Furutaka and the Tenru concentrated fire upon her at 2am, and then three minutes later the Vinson's was hit by another torpedo from the Yubari, hitting her number one fire room. A gunnery officer, Lieutenant Commander Robert Adams, informed Rykoff they had lost all guns, so the captain tried to conceal his ship with smoke, but no surviving engineers were in position to carry out the order. Rykoff still held hope it was not the enemy, but friendlies firing upon them, so he ordered a new set of colors hoisted. Oddly enough, this was met by seven minutes of respite. But then, at 2:13 a.m., Chokai's searchlights illuminated Vinsons, and after three minutes, salvos pommeled her. By 2:30 a.m., Rykoff ordered abandoned ship, and the Vinsons went hissing over to her grave. By 2:58 a.m., the destroyer Wilson saw the action of battle and began to open fire on Keiko's searchlight before shifting her fire upon the Aoba and the Chokai. Her gunfire provoked counterfire from the Chokai and the Tenru but she would only suffer minor scratches and some shrapnel. Close by, the destroyer Helm received a message at 2.10am ordering all destroyers to rendezvous at a pre-designated area off Sabo, so she proceeded there. The twin columns of Japanese warships were heading northeast when they ran into Ralph Talbot. The destroyer was on her southwest leg of a patrol when at 2.10am the Unagi illuminated her with a searchlight showcasing the poor destroyer to the entire western group of japanese cruisers. By 216 they began to open fire on her and the ralph talbot's number 1 torpedo mount was hit. Lieutenant commander Callahan ordered the ship to speed up and zigzag. In quick succession, the ubati scored 5 hits on ralph talbot, disabling her guns, torpedo controls, radar and killing 14 of her crew, including the ship's doctor. At 2.32am, the enemy suddenly stopped firing, and the searchlights went off. Turns out, the western group received an order to retire. Ralph Talbot had a power failure and crawled closer to Savo, her repair crews working frantically. The Yunagi had peeled out of the Japanese column at 1.43am and was heading west when she ran right into Jarvis. Yunagi closed in close enough to see a large gaping hole in Jarvis's side, as she opened fire at 1.55am. She also launched torpedoes, but they failed to hit the ship. After 5 minutes of gunfire, Yunagi went to hunt elsewhere. At 2.16am, Mikawa consulted his staff, and although the Japanese had only suffered trifling damage and possessed 60% of their shells, Their units' formation was in serious disarray, and half of their torpedoes were gone. Mikawa and his staff estimated it would take two hours to reassemble and head over to hit the American transports, leaving just one hour left until daylight. They assumed the American carriers would be hastening northeast to smash them. If they left immediately, they could still anticipate an air attack, but would find the striking force already 120 miles up in the New Georgia Sound and at that distance, they might manage to tug the American carriers within range of Rabaul's torpedo planes. They were also confident they had won a great victory, and the IJA had already assured them that they would clean the stranded American Marines off Guadalcanal. So at 2.20 a.m., Mikawa ordered a retirement. Mikawa felt confident about their success, but many of his fellow captains did not. During the swing around the northern group, Captain Sawa emptied Kinugaza of her starboard torpedo tubes at the transports over 13 miles off Tulagi. Zero hits were scored. As Mikawa ordered the withdrawal, Captain Hayakawa of Chokai tried to persuade him to renew an attack to sink those transports. By 3.40am, the striking force had reassembled and their crews had all shifted to anti-aircraft positions. Meanwhile, Commander Omai gathered reports of all the ships and concluded that they had sunk five Allied cruisers and four destroyers. As they sailed in 958, Mikaua detached Cruiser Division 6 without escort for Keving, via the Bougainville Strait, while the other ships were going to make their way to Rabaul. Cruiser Division 6 was triumphantly sailing away on the morning of August the 10th when Lieutenant Commander John Moore's submarine, the S-44, fired four torpedoes just 700 yards away hitting the Keiko three times, sinking her within five minutes. Her sister managed to pick up all but 71 of her crew as they made their way to Caving at 6.10pm, on a sour note. Canberra lay motionless with a sharp list with multiple fires. Destroyer Patterson came to her help, using four hoses and a hand pump to douse her fires. But it was of no use. By 5.15, Commander Walsh ordered abandoned ship. Admiral Turner gave the sad order to Selfridge to scuttle the ship, and in the typical American fashion, four torpedoes were launched at the stationary target, and only one hit, as the other three failed to explode. Those damn pesky torpedo problems. Canberra had to be shelled further until 8am when she finally sank. Astoria looked like she might survive, and her crews wrestled her fires and tried to repair her for hours, But secondary explosions began to occur, and eventually she sunk as well. Admiral Fletcher's carriers reversed course to go northwest at 1 a.m. while awaiting Gormley's verdict on their retirement. The first flash reports of the battle reached the task force by 3 a.m. Shortly after, 3.30 a.m., Gormley ratified the withdrawal, and 30 minutes later the task force was heading southeast again. Captain Forrest Sherman of WASP asked Admiral Noy three times for permission to request permission from Fletcher for the air group who had trained for night operations to dash north with some destroyers to hunt down the enemy, but noise refused each time. According to Admiral Fletcher, he did not see a battle report until 6am. Some of his staff implored him to turn back, but he refused them. Admiral Turner had observed the gunfires at around 1.45am whereupon he got the Guadalcanal transports to stop unloading. Without any word from General Vandegrift on the state of the unloading, Turner faced a crucial decision. He was very aware the cargo was far from unloaded. He knew of the surface action that had occurred, but there was an absence of attacks on his cargo ships. He decided to stay another day to unload, showing some real brass balls as he had no air cover. He informed Fletcher of his decision at 6:41 a.m. and added a plea for air support from the carriers. Fletcher never stopped for a moment, and Turner would receive his answer at 2:15 p.m. when he intercepted a message from Fletcher to Gormley. That message was when Fletcher abdicated the role of Expeditionary Force command to Turner. Oof. During that morning, Turner gradually became aware of the situation. Canberra and Astoria were sunk and no one could find Jarvis. Then he had to halt unloading at 8.40, because a report came in that Japanese bombers were sighted heading south. Admiral Yamada, commanding the 25th Air Flotilla, was anticipating contact with the American carriers, and he mounted a strike at 7.40 a.m., consisting of 16 Bettys and 15 Zeros. Instead of aiming the strike at the transports, he chose to hunt Jarvis, who was about 130 miles southwest of Savo. In what was to be her last fight, Jarvis clawed down two Japanese planes and damaged another four before she was sunk. On August the 9th, as the day faded, Turner gathered his depleted task force and by sunset, they withdrew for Nomiya. The Marines were now alone. Mikawa won a spectacular but flawed victory at the Battle of Savo. He had sent a ill-assorted hogposh group of surface ships against a materially stronger enemy who had potential backing of aircraft. It was a stunningly aggressive and audacious attack that took the enemy by complete surprise. Mikawa believed in the IGN's superiority at night combat, and this paid off. He also really, really got lucky. However, the objective had been to smash the transports, and in this they had failed. And this invoked Admiral Yamamoto's ire. If Mikawa or Yamada's airmen had smashed the transports, it would have ended the campaign in the Solomon Islands right then and there. Many in the IGN later on in the war believed the obsession with a decisive naval battle doctrine is what made Mikawa miscalculate the situation and go for a surface fleet battle rather than follow up on the transports. This miscalculation was done by most of the IGN until 1944 when it was too late. The IGN failed to appreciate hitting commercial warships. They are always trying to knock out the enemy warships and thus gain control over areas. The Battle of Savo Island triggered a special investigation by the United States Navy led by Admiral Arthur Hepburn. He interviewed Turner and Crutchley alongside many other senior officers. Upon returning to the United States, he interviewed Captain Bode of the Chicago and Rykoff. Shortly after the interviews, Captain Bode killed himself. Hepburn would conclude the defeat at Savo Island was primarily because of the enemy achieving complete surprise. But he added a side note, at the end reading this. As a contributory cause must be placed upon the withdrawal of the carrier groups on the evening before the battle. This was responsible for Admiral Turner's conference, which in turn was responsible for the absence of the Australians from the action. It was furthermore responsible for the fact that there was no force available to inflict damage on the withdrawing enemy. Later on in life, Admiral Turner had a reflection on the battle and he said this, The Navy was still obsessed with a strong feeling of technical and mental superiority over the enemy. In spite of ample evidence as to the enemy capabilities, most of our officers and men despised the enemy and felt themselves sure victors in all encounters under any circumstances. The net result of all of this was a fatal lethargy of mind which induced a confidence without readiness and a routine acceptance of outworn peacetime standards of conduct. I believe that this psychological factor, as a cause of our defeat, was even more important than the element of surprise. The battle for savo Island is over, but our friends down under are about to see some intense action back on the Kokoda track. Two weeks ago we covered the rapid Japanese advance towards Kokoda, where they ultimately defeated the Marabra force, forcing the allied defenders to retreat back to Daniki. On August the 4th, a new commanding officer arrived at Daniki, Major Alan Cameron, a veteran of the fighting on New Britain following the fall of Rabaul and at Salamaua when the enemy hit there in March. Cameron was promised reinforcements contingent on him driving the Japanese out of Kokoda, so that an airstrip could be used to fly the men in. He held a reputation as a very capable officer and began planning his offensive immediately. Between 6.30 and 8.00 a.m. on August the 8th, three companies set out from Taniki, each with their own mission. Company A, led by Captain Noel Symington, moved along a little-used track to circle around the Japanese occupying the Kokoda airstrip. If successful, they were to hold out until other companies arrived to reinforce them. Company D would embark along a track heading northeast to set up an ambush along the main track from Buna to Kokoda in order to stop additional enemy troops from moving on Kokoda. Company C would go along the track leading directly from Daninki to Kokoda for a frontal assault. Captain Symington's group arrived to the airfield finding a small number of Japanese soldiers who turned out to all be engineers. They promptly fled when the Australians opened fire, allowing Symington to station his 100 men in the best defensive positions possible, expecting a concentrated enemy counterattack to come soon after. Company D, led by Captain M.L. Bidstrup, set up its ambush, which was at first successful. Soon, however, Company D found itself under heavy enemy fire from both directions on the track. Their fighting lasted day into night when Bidstrap realized he could not reach Kokoda and that his company was going to be encircled. They were greatly outnumbered. He was forced to pull back towards Deniki, and it would take two days to do so, pursued by some screaming Japanese the entire way. Company C was caught by surprise by the IJA 2nd Company of the 144th Regiment. Amongst the first killed was their company commander, Captain A.C. Dean. The Australians found themselves pinned down all day, unable to break through to Kokoda. Finally, after nightfall, they were forced to withdraw, and the Japanese chased them all the way back to Daniki. That evening, Colonel Tsukamoto learned, to his great surprise, the Australian troops had occupied the Kokoda airstrip. He was under the impression it was just a single platoon of the enemy, so he sent his weakest company along with a platoon and a battalion gun to dislodge them. The next morning, Company A reported to Cameron that they had occupied the Kokoda's airstrip and were waiting for the promised reinforcements. Cameron radioed General Morris asking him to send the troops, but Morris said they could only send them the following day. Cameron warned the general... By then it might be too late. While Company A's Lance Corporal Sinopa, was making his reports to Cameron, the Japanese had launched a day-long series of assaults on Company A at the airstrip. The battle raged as the rain poured. An allied supply plane circled the airstrip but left when the pilot saw a large number of Japanese. He did not even bother dropping supplies on Company A who were exhausted. Their food rations were all low, and so was their ammunition. Symington saw his mostly young and inexperienced troops suffering fatigue and hunger, and he was receiving no word from Cameron. So, he was forced to order withdrawal by 7pm on August the 7th. He knew his small force could not hope to stop the larger enemy force, and Company A would reach the relative safety of a small village on August the 12th. The villagers roasted sweet potatoes for the famished men, and a patrol of the PIB met them to guide them to a place called Izurava, just a bit south of Daniki. There, at Izurava, they were able to tend to their wounded and rest. Meanwhile, at Daniki, the men could see Kokoda was again firmly in Japanese hands. On August the 12th, Company A circled around them, witnessing a large number of heavily armed Japanese moving off the tracks heading for Daniki. The enemy force was about evenly matched for Cameron's 450 Australian and Papuan defenders. Colonel Tsukamoto launched his attack with a similar number of men, and the advantage was his as he was able to choose where to poke at the defender's perimeter. On the morning of August 13th, the Japanese attacked a position occupied by Company E, and despite severe casualties, the Australians held the line for an entire day. It became clear, Company E could not hold out against the Japanese with small arms. They were being met with motors, machine guns, and a battalion gun. The shells rained upon them day and night, offering no rest. On August the 14th, Tsukamoto began a heavy bombardment from his big gun and the motors prompting Cameron to see futility in his position, so he was forced to order a withdrawal to Izurava. The defenders fled in a hurry, abandoning large quantities of ammunition, equipment, and food. Back on August the 13th, a Japanese convoy arrived at Buna, unloading 3,000 members of a naval construction unit alongside vehicles, supplies, and construction equipment. They began to make their way up the Kokoda Track. The counterattack by Colonel Tsukamoto weighed heavily on the mind of the Allied Commander-in-Chief General Douglas MacArthur. What disturbed him was the lack of aggressive air campaigns against enemy convoys steaming from Rabaul to the east coast of New Guinea. MacArthur was pissed off with the Air Force Chief, General George Brett. MacArthur had raised concerns that convoys were en route for Buna, but Brett had suspended air operations back on July the 18th and 19th, and thus the troops had landed on the 13th, unhindered brett's explanation was that his crews were simply too exhausted and suffering from low morale by the time his reconnaissance planes had even seen the convoy they were already unloading their cargo and several bombing runs proved fruitless there was a very apparent amount of bad blood between macarthur and brett to everyone around them lieutenant colonel samuel anderson a survey officer for the air force returned to Washington where General Marshall asked him if he thought Brett should be relieved. Anderson's response was this. As long as General MacArthur and General Brett are the commanders in the Southwest Pacific, there is going to be no cooperation between ground and air, and I don't think you are going to relieve General MacArthur. Washington began to believe Brett was simply not aggressive enough. Marshall and Lieutenant General Henry Hap Arnold offered MacArthur several possible replacements for Brett, and MacArthur made it clear he wanted someone with actual combat experience. Everyone was quite surprised when he gave the unqualified Major General George Kenney the job. Although Kenney had flown 47 missions against the Germans in World War I, shooting down two aircraft, it was MacArthur once upon a time when he was a chief of staff who had suppressed Kenny's campaign for an independent air force from the army. The 53-year-old Major General arrived to MacArthur's HQ by July the 30th. The 5'5 man was on the bulky side. He had closely cropped graying hair and blue eyes. His most distinguishing feature was a jagged line across the right side of his chin, the result of an aircraft accident. One journalist, Claire Booth-Luce, described him as a bright, hard, scar-faced little bulldog of a man. Kenny spent his first hour with MacArthur hearing the man vent about how much he hated the Air Force in general, but particularly the Southwest Pacific Air Force. As far as MacArthur was concerned, Brett's air crews had done nothing right at all, and were, quote, an inefficient rabble of Boulevard shock troops whose contribution to the war effort was practically nil. Kenny proceeded to tell MacArthur, I know how to run an air force, as well as or better than anyone else. I'll be loyal to you, MacArthur and that will produce results. MacArthur was impressed by this, and he patted the man's shoulders and told him, George, I think we are going to get along together alright. Although Cameron's offensive to retake Kokoda had ended in defeat, he had indeed delayed the Japanese advance on Daniki, and he had surprised the Japanese commanders to such an extent that Coupled with the recent developments in the Southern Solomons, the invaders would decide to delay their Port Mortsby offensive until the rest of General Hori's South Seas Detachment, with the Uzawa Detachment attached, could arrive at the battlefront. Reinforced with an additional company, Cameron would continue to fight back the renewed Japanese attacks on August the 13th. On the morning of August the 14th, however, Tsukamoto finally managed to break through the Western Australian positions, so Cameron would have to order a hastily withdrawal towards Izarava, in which the men would leave behind most of their equipment and supplies. But this is the end for now, and in the next episode, we're going to resume our coverage of Operation Watchtower with the Battle of Tenaru. We'll also be heading back to the Gilberts to cover a bold raid on Mackin Island. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com. And hey, don't forget to check out our new podcast, narrated and written by me, The Fall and Rise of China Podcast, part of the Age of Conquest series. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I cover everything Chinese and Japanese, beginning with the Opium Wars of the 1800s, going on to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The American and British Navy were served a nasty surprise by the audacious Admiral Kunichi Mikawa, won a great victory over a larger enemy force. However, as great as it was, Mikawa failed to hit the allied transports. The boys down under were having a terrible time on the Kokoda track, but favor would soon favor the bold.